This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Poetry. My name is Hal Kos and today I'm really, really excited to be talking to Eileen Miles about their new anthology, Pathetic Literature, out last year from Grove Press. Uh, the anthology contains over 100 pathetic contributions to literature from the last 1,000 years and they're from all over the world and they're all over the place. It's a self-described sex club of thought with jokes. Eileen, who edited this anthology, is a poet and writer whose books include Chelsea Girls, um, For Now, I Must Be Living Twice, New and Selected Poems, and Afterglow, A Dog Memoir. They ran for President of the United States in 1992. Hi, Eileen. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? I'm good, Hal. This is fun. I'm glad we got here. Could you start by telling us a little bit about you, what you do, and how you came to land on Pathetic as a badge of distinction? Ha, huh, okay. Interesting. Um... So, I, I mean, I, I'm a self-defined poet, and I've been such a person for, I guess, about 50 years, you know? I came to New York in the 70s with the very the intention of becoming a poet and quickly got into a world of writers that, that made it very possible, and, um, and I thrived in it, and, and my, life, my life, writing life became more complicated in good ways, doing various, everything from performance art to journalism, to theater, to wrote a libretti and started writing novels. Once I stopped drinking and drugging so much that it was only a thought and an aspiration. It became a, I'd be able to, became able to realize longer projects. Um, But I think, I think always, I mean, I'm very much a writer who was born in a community and a community of others and, and, you know, the way, the way American poetry was when I arrived in it, you know, like, like say I, I went to St. Mark's church, which, which um, as an institution, we defined ourselves in the seventies as the sort of the church of kind of the avant-garde or of America, of al- American alternative poetry, but, but experience, you know, and it included people like John Ashbery and, um, Allen Ginsberg and you know it was kind of queer in a way but not queer necessarily around homosexuality or queerness but just just it was a just an other tradition you know and that had a lot of connections to art and culture 
Um, so we saw ourselves as very central, but I, I think as culture has shifted and, and gotten more mainstreamed, it started to be defined more as experimental. And um, But there was just it basically, it always felt like kind of a permissive tribe of weirdos. And, um, and that was a way to define my taste. And even before I knew anybody, I found people like Newt Hampson, who was about, you know, a writer, a, a Scandinavian writer who was about starving him. So only, only, um, you know, only eating if he made his money from writing and just, you know, people who were devoted to odd experiments that were performative in a certain way and, and living in, in particular, maybe, I don't know, to me, I mean, like interesting and um, purposeful lives, but others might call them fringe. Um, and so that, you know, so I think that um, wittingly or unwittingly, I found myself in a community of such writers like my, my peers in San Francisco um, were poets who wanted to write about sex. And so they kind of joined under a band called New Narrative. And that includes and very loosely everybody from Kathy Acker to Robert Gluck to Dodie Bellamy to Kevin Killian Um Somebody, you know, a, a writer like Samuel Delaney, who was a sci-fi writer and a queer writer, was always part of our tribe. The, the Boston poet John Wieners. And, and, you know, and in the art world, well, was it in the art world? No, actually, through a book dealer, I discovered a really important writer for me, Robert Walser, the Swiss writer who, um, you know, took these walks and constructed narratives in very stray and gathered ways. So, so. I was always excited by writers who did unusual methods of composition. And um, I love, I came up in the era of Andy Warhol, who was about recording and divulging and um, um, fandom and um, excessive feelings and being very um, devoted to American pop culture in a certain way. And, and also avant-garde duration. So I think, so there was a, there was a, a well of taste you know, that, that led me to pathetic. And I think, you know, and I think, you know, the book tells us, but I think I discovered, I mean, I was always aware of the word and it just got meaner as time passed in my lifetime. And, um, but come the nineties, it had a, it had a, a short association through the critic, Ralph Rugoff, who curated a show called um, pathetic masculinity in Los Angeles. And it included people like Mike Kelly and, um, Tony Ausler, but guys who were doing weird things with gender and um, kind of personal work in a way, you know, but theorized personal work. And and I think it became a joke with some friends, mostly female feminist friends, that they were actually reinventing feminism for men, you know, and um, and because and these guys had been taught by feminists and Cal Arts and, you know, I mean, like some of the his, this history is loose, but I think it's pretty true. So we, I adopted the term and started, I think by the, by the aughts, I was briefly a professor at UCSD. And I, um, one of my powers was to teach a literary seminar, you know, to graduate students. And I had never taken, taught a liter, neither gone to graduate school nor taught a seminar. But I thought, okay, this is the time to, to invent pathetic literature. And so I, I had a class and I made the first gathering of, of Valerie Solanus and Delaney and and Walser and John Wieners and made, you know, and, 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 and was received very enthusiastically. And we, we just had so much fun with the, 
with the word and the language. And we did, we had a pathetic conference and it was so scarcely attended and everything fucked up and it was really funny and, and great. And so it just lurked in it and it migrated into a book of mine, um, um, Afterglow, which was about my dog at that same time who was dying in San Diego. And, um, and I think at some point I, I connected how, I mean, I, you know, I tend to, when I write books, when I construct books, I often drop in other texts that I'm obsessed with and decide the book will make a home for this. And, and that's what the book often grows around the text that is, you know, migrated into it. So an aspect of pathetic literature came into the dog book and my then um, wonderful young um, writer, um, editor, um, Zach Pace at Grove said, you should do an anthology of pathetic literature. And my agent was trying to, I mean, the whole thing, it's so funny how things happen in books. My agent was trying to, I, I'm, I'm the kind of writer that I have a reputation, but I never get money for my books. I mean, I get little, little tiny bits of money and I, you know, I make a living, I survive. But um, so he was con- trying to construct a book deal that was like four books so that I could get something from the press. And so pathetic, you know, weaseled it way, its way into my contract. And it was a book that I thought I would do someday, but the pandemic became that day because it was a perfect thing. I was, I was in Marfa where I am right now. And um, I had been working on a novel and it was very hard to keep focused during the pandemic, at least at first. And so I found that the time that I was in that was really so glorious and excessive was really good for writing poetry. And I started to edit the pathetic book in that time because it just, it was, it was a little discipline. It was a very counting thing. Who will I, I would pick a writer every day, you know, and throw them into the book. And I had lots of time. I read, I read Borges for the first time. That was my next question. Was it because there's this sense of it being a tribe? So kind of people who you've always and had already carried with you, but were there discoveries for you and you were putting it together or did anyone that you then included surprise you in terms of, oh, no, this is actually pathetic <laughs> or not pathetic. I know in the introduction you say, no, Gertrude Stein, she isn't pathetic, right? But there's Juno Barnes. I was kind of surprised by Borges and Simone Weil. Like, it sounds like it was really fun to put together. And did that involve you also surprising yourself when you were compiling it? Well, there was, there was just a lot of pleasurable perversity in the choices and, and in some cases, you know, like I didn't think of Kathy Acker as pathetic, but then it became more of a, you know, and I knew Kathy and she was really a difficult person. Um, and so I probably had read, I had read her somewhat, but not so much, you know, and so re-delving into her, I was like, of course, there's big pots of pathetic in this writing, you know, but, but again, you know, like Borges, it was just like, the, psychologically, the pandemic was so wonderful to be in those long corridors of thinking and reading, waiting that Borges. And then it was fun to, to, to find which was the pathetic piece. of. I mean, like it is, I mean, undoubtedly anybody could be in this book and you would just have to find the turn that struck you. And it, it's very personal, you know, I mean, I think it was a very, it's a very personal anthology. And I think that's part of the fun of it. You know, like I felt that, you know, like I have an earlier book called The Importance of Being Iceland, which was a gathering of art writing and interviews. And, you know, and when I was putting that book together, I remember thinking, 
who is this book for? This is such a weird list of things. And so many people came up to me proudly and said, I can't believe that you put in all my favorite things. And I think, I think we, you know, because of the internet and the way we organize reality now, I think we're all these weird ramshackle piles of things, you know, and I think pathetic really um, meets that kind of in that way of organizing reality, I think, too. I mean, I think, I mean, Robert Walser is very much the patron saint of it because I think his composition is, is so much that, you know, the way he describes himself as a, you know, cobbler of, of, you know, just tapping things together and, you know, um, and, and I've been very inspired by that thought in my own writing. I've never read any, he, this introduced me to him and I now need to go and read Robert Walsh, obviously. Yeah. Oh, he's, yeah. The Walk, look for a book, a long essay called The Walk. Which the is Walk. So okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, maybe I just want to ask you about some kind of qualities of the pathetic. I mean, I know because in the afterward, and you mentioned this, it's kind of, uh, in a way, the, the anthology also works as a dictionary, right? So these aren't really key words or anything, but I'm just interested in the language, like kind of what surrounds the idea of pathetic. So in the introduction, you say, it's work that acknowledges a boundary, then passes it, it being the hovering monolith, that bigger thing that confirms. And a lot of these pieces, they have this kind of, they're like they're pressing against some exteriority, you know, like something, they're like up against something. Some of them are really like, large and messy and kind of grandiose and some of them are kind of curled up and and much smaller there's the amazing um sparrows piece on on reading moby dick no kind of piece by piece Uh, can you talk about uh this kind of because i just found it throughout the the bits of the anthology that i read this kind of big versus small so pathetic is facing up to something that can't be faced up to really and that facing up is kind of exhausting but it's vital and yeah Uh yeah i mean i guess it's it I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's more complicated theoretical ways of talking about this, but but I just do feel like in my own lifetime, I've so experienced myself personally and culturally and within cultures as always feeling this threat of erasure, always experiencing something which is the world or my life or the day or my comfort zone and then finding something that, that not only fails to acknowledge it, but is ready to knock it right down and in the way of something which is either progress or cleanliness or, or fixing something, you know, so that it's just like, it just, it just, it's, it's vague and it's either, sometimes it feels parental the way childhood was just this incredibly tingly space that was always being marshaled by these adult figures, you know, and yet that tingly thing I think is, is something that drives so much you know, and, and is such a, um, a source of encounter of, of, of spirits and spirituality, you know? And so I think, I think that, I think that, um, I think the, the, the book, in so many ways, I've just made pathetic be the term that wants to protect that thing by saying that it changes shapes utterly, but it's something it's, it's that je ne sais quoi thing, you know, that, you know what I'm talking about kind of thing. That, that that inhabits every gesture and every um, thing that 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 um, that it feels like an invitation of a sort, you know, and and even in one one's own invitation to be alive, you know, fucked upedly, you know, and, and you know, it's like what is what is adorable, you know, and it could be it can be ghastly, 
you know yeah and that's also for me really where the where the like queerness comes on it's not kind of not normal or abnormal or subnormal it's just kind of whatever normal can't get a hold on no and a lot of the texts are kind of troubled basically troubled by something that they can't quite get into what they're saying but it's it's there as a kind of motivating force behind the the composition of the piece or why it's been written or yeah um and it's a queer feeling i think yeah i wanted to ask you about time as well so there's there's quite a there's quite a few, there's a, I've got a quote here from Nicole Wallace. No, I disrespect time because it disrespected me. And there's this, there's, a, there's also like a motif across some of them about kind of disrespecting time or killing time. Reading and literature is kind of a waste of time. I don't mean that this anthology is a waste of time, but the feeling of, of like time wasting, you know, like, uh, and it's interesting that you said you kind of put it together in the, in the pandemic days as well. So yeah, I don't know if, if you felt, time sort of uh is is a is a thread that holds the the book together as well yeah 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 because i think the uniqueness of time and and that so much personality and literature is in so many ways a time code you know that's what one recognizes in work and often and decides whether to consume it or not based on your be able your ability to endure that time code you know, and, and, and I think the practice of writing is asserting a time code, whether it's regular or irregular, you know, and um, and again, it's sort of like one can one opens up a book and you start to read something and you're like, ah, you know, and and well, I mean, and interestingly, Walser, who I love so much, I found his time code so disturbing because it's it's so erratic, you know, and I think that's something I've, I've adopted or something that exists in my own writing that I find I, you either go for it or you don't because it's not, um, it's not normative, you know? And I think, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, sociologists write about time, you know, I remember reading and, um, Paul Goodman and it would be regarded as fucked up and racist now, but he would talk about ghetto time and, and being in whole neighborhoods where you just time really stops and you feel like anything could happen here. And there's an emptiness, you know, and I, and I sought those places all my life, you know, like literally and, you know, figuratively within work, you know, work that seems to suggest an opening into another space of, of another time experience, you know, and, and truly even, you know, the town, I, you know, I live in New York and I love New York, but they're really, New York and Marfa are really two different time codes, you know, and, and this one is very conductive to writing because it doesn't ask it, that part is part of it. It doesn't ask anything of me so I can dwell in this kind of very passive, um, always unraveling space and make something in it. I mean, that's the thing that's interesting about open, you know, like open time codes is that it's, it's either devastating or fertile and perhaps depending on who you are or how you are. Yeah. Where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and also, I mean, even I'm thinking now that even like the uh, uh, the anthology as a book is because I was saying to you before, no, I haven't read it all yet. I, I mean, I haven't read it cover to cover. You wouldn't know. It's kind of it's this time in which you can you can kind of pick go in and out. You know, um, yeah, it feels feels you know like um, 
something you can just kind of be with for for a long, long time. Um, yeah, rather than reading through. I would also dare such a word as devotional, because I think in a way the book and the concept is is devoted to that. You know, whatever that kind of composition is. You know, and it would mean again, it would mean something very different to every one of these writers. But I feel like that's an aspect of it. You know, people are really saying what they're devoted to. You know, both in its absence and its in its presence, and then the practice of it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. And I just wanted to ask you also kind of on that, I guess, about like form, like we have a lot of diary entries and journals and letters and poetry and are some forms more pathetic than others? Or is that a kind of, you know, you're putting an anthology together, you need to find, like you said, the turn of the pathetic in even longer text. No. Um, was there stuff you had to leave out because it was just too long? Yeah. What, what's the, um, what do you think the relationship is between pathetic and and, and how things are put. Well, I, I mean, I think that I think that I certainly experienced a preference for for work that's formal quality was was unique, you know, was 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 not easily um, defined as this or that, you know. Um, I mean, Valerie Solanus's play, you know, it's almost like a piece of work that didn't exist for a long time, you know, even though it was such a provocation and even part of how how and why she shot Warhol you know so it's sort of like is that a is that a manifesto is that a play is that um uh, exhibit a you know I mean it's it's something I think a lot of a lot of pieces have that quality of morphing even as you look at them you know um there's not much that's really conventional formally um, but were you thinking about the book as a whole or or is piece by piece? I guess, but also, I mean, uh, also hearing about the way you put it together, I mean, it could just go on, couldn't it? <laughs> we get another one. Um, it's not an anthology, because, you know, anthologies can be quite, it's weird, because actually when I think about uh, how maybe people think about th- anthologies as sort of, it's a canon, it's something that polices something, it's something that has, that, that puts people in and out, but this doesn't really do that at all, I don't think. And that might be because it's so idiosyncratic that it's it's kind of, you know, it's actually quite light. It's not actually, uh, if, if I can say it like this, it's not, it's not really serious about, about kind of the, the limits of this stuff. No? So that means that it kind of, it, it could, it could, I, I feel like I could almost sort of forget what was in here and misplace myself 
something else in here that I would like to see in there, you know, and then come back to it and be like, oh, that wasn't in there. Well, I thought it was pathetic, but what does that mean? You know what I mean? Right, um, exactly. life. <laughs> so, so then it, 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 I think it, I really like the idea that it makes the reader feel like they are, they could be the editor, you know, that they have, they have text that they would slip in, what they would imagine as part of its continuity you know i mean it was very funny dealing with the publisher i mean they were great in so many ways they let it be as big as, as it is which was amazing and we just you know i picked the the cover and they were like great and we you know so that was they were great to work with but they had so little ambition for the book as a um you know i mean i have i'm very energetic as i mean my my own experience as a writer is that when a book comes out, nothing happens. Everybody, you know, you work on this thing for so long and then nothing happens. So you really have to invent things. You actually have to be the instigator of, of the book having a life. Otherwise, it will not have a life, you know. And so I've been very, you know, on my own in terms of organizing tours and events and things like that. Because it's just like I just regard that as part of the labor. You know, and um, and they were just not down with it. It was really funny. They just they just thought it's an anthology. Nobody comes out for an anthology. You know, I was thinking, no, this is not. This is like a party. This is this is a collective experience. Everybody will come out for this, and it's really funny. And and, and it did have. I mean, it was just like the tour was amazing because there were just nights both I mean Los Angeles and New York were ridiculous there were just New York nights where it was like a mob scene it was like a an opening you know and people the people who read were just so on their hind legs in terms of being funny and performance and it just you know it really was a introducer of people to other cultures and stuff and I felt very proud of that and the, but the best thing we did was the pathetic happening which was in New York where we read the whole fucking thing and we did it, you know, it would have taken 22 hours. And so St. Mark's church gave us the whole building and we just staged it in four or five locations simultaneously so that it just went on from like say three to 11. And it was a beautiful spring day and people were inside and outside and smoking and, you know, just dipping in, in the same way, you know, so, yeah, so it, it really, you know, and I and I knew that I knew that it was inherently a performance this book. So whether the publisher agreed or not, um, we I had you know we had that experience, you know, and a, a friend who was um, who's in the book, Tom Cole, who is a playwright and also a theater producer, kind of teamed up with me, and you know we organized these things and we. We invited, um, it was like making a film, you know, we invited uh, eight other sub curators, you know, and, and really made it wide. And, and you know, and we've, it's funny, we, we, we largely videotaped the whole thing. And then I think my dream was to make a really ridiculously short trailer, you know, like eight minutes or something. But I think it'll be longer than that. But but A.L. Steiner and I are going to make a film or a video of of it, you know, but it wasn't weirdly. It was like UK, the the Grove in the UK didn't. I mean, I guess it's available in in the UK, but they didn't take it on as usually. My books are published by both. They didn't take it, and I just it's really and it and it got you know it got written slowly. It got written about, but I thought 
man, this will be, you know, like pathetic literature. This will really get attention. Nah, not, I mean, not in the, by people like yourself, you know, like who found it, found it, but not in that mainstream way. They just, then the New Yorker wouldn't touch it. The New York Times wouldn't touch it, you know. Which is like, I mean, that seems pretty fittingly pathetic or pathetic end for, uh, I don't know, it seems like there's something about the, the pieces in there that are kind of awkward and they don't really, I don't know, they're, they're, you know, it'd be, it would be weird if it, if it kind of kickstarted some huge thing because actually they're so kind of, a lot of them are so like sort of, I don't want to say modest, but they're kind of still and quiet and, and curious and yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it will have a life, you know. Yeah, no, I think it. I think it does. It, it seems like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The conversations continue. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so, final question: What are you working on at the moment? Um, I'm heading towards a novel that I've been off and on with since 2013. I just started a little scrap of it, and then all these other books and projects came out. So my plan is to try and. I don't know how it's going to be, but to try and reenact um, the experience of the pandemic. But basically, I'm I'm trying to sublet my place in New York, um, and and just live in Marfa for a year and finish this book. You know, so I want to just sort of stay still next year and and just be in it because the idea, my plan is to make really like a thousand page book, like make one of these really big books. And, and what does that mean? And what would that mean for me, this writer, you know? So, so it's a real challenge, which I'm frightened by in many ways, but excited about, you know? Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it's great. I want to ask you a question. How old are you? Me? Yeah. I'm, th- I'm 30. Okay. Cause I just, I was intrigued by the color of your hair. Is it natural or are you? Yeah, no, no. We should say to listeners that this gray hair is not natural. Uh, and I, yeah, yeah. I, I was like, are you the, uh, I mean, I, I once dated somebody who was 29 and she had pure white hair and it was very funny because I would often walk into rooms looking for her and every woman who turned was old, you know, and I thought, oh, I'm dating, you know, and I thought, are you a young person with white hair? Or? That's it. That's it. And what happens in Italy is that you get given the formal address more often because at a glance, people think you're some old that's great. He's coming for a coffee. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Let me ask you. So, why did you choose to do it? So the hair. Yeah. It was. It was just after the. It was like the end of the pandemic. Like clubs were opening and stuff, and I'd never done it before. And I thought that it would be fun, you know. And, it, right, and right. I needed that at that time, yeah. whenever it was, oh. like the beginning of twenty. 22 i can't remember yeah yeah yeah, yeah. interesting oh cool yeah no, a good choice and also, and also i don't know i don't know probably in new york i mean in i live in rome right and uh it's not like a thing that you do you yeah know, people kind of look at you a bit weird but that's okay yeah like yeah yeah you kind of stand out and sometimes that's a good thing yeah um thank you again yeah yeah you're welcome thank you Thanks uh, to you guys listening and uh, come back soon. And and what's the last thing you said? I said come back soon.